guys, Jim Cox. I'm here with an interview with a, a good friend, uh, Bruce Kirsten. Uh, he's the CEO of Savant Creative. We've known each other for a uh, long, long, long time. And um, he lives um, outside of New York City and recently had uh, experienced the uh, coronavirus, kind of has first-hand experience. So I wanted to kind of get his take on his experiences and kind of some of the takeaways given uh, the situation today. So, Bruce, thanks for taking the time to uh, chat. Sure, thanks for having me, Jim. Awesome. So... Um, why don't we uh, just do a little bit of background. Uh, where are you at in New York City? Uh, what's your locale? I live about um, 25 miles due east of Midtown Manhattan um, at the southern part of Long Island, uh, not terribly far from Kennedy Airport. Gotcha. So what makes you think that you came down with the coronavirus? I mean, did you get tested? I mean, what's, why don't you describe what, what happened in the experience? So um, it was a bit of a surprise to me. And at first I thought I might have just had a cold or the flu, mostly because um, actually uh, one of the offices that I work in was extremely conservative. Um, we shut down way ahead of schedule when uh, Governor Cuomo was suggesting the reduction of the workforce down to 50% and 25%. Um, the, my client was way ahead of him both times. Um, we had safe distancing. I have a private office when I'm out there. So I felt like I really wasn't exposed to it. Um, and I, myself and my two children and my wife, we began to, you know, self-isolate, I guess, or we were, put it this way, we respected everything we were told to do and then some, including the entire time uh, uh, that has passed, I think I have been in one store only, and uh, that was uh, after, it was before I was infected. We've had all our food delivered. We've kind of followed everything to the T. Um, I first started feeling like I had flu symptoms. Uh, couldn't figure out where they were coming from. Did not suspect COVID at all until the symptoms became more, I would say, exotic in a way than the flu or any kind of cold I had. Um, at first, I, you know, I developed a, a really bad headache. I had no fever. Um, I did um, develop some severe achiness, but again, it wasn't flu achiness. Um, it was the type of discomfort that affected all every joint in both of my legs to the point where I couldn't find any spot that was comfortable whatsoever. And if I did manage to find a comfortable spot, it only lasted maybe 10 seconds, and I'd flip. I sort of felt like a, like a pancake on a hot grill mm. and, uh, you know, had to keep moving to keep things going. Um, and then it wasn't until the third day that I had it that I even developed the one day's worth of fever I had 
uh, my fever hit like 100.4 for one day um, and then departed. So I can't exactly figure out um, even how the infection entered my home with the exception um, you know, not to be funny, it's a very serious thing, but I do have a 17-year-old rebellious daughter who I know sometimes sneaks out of the house and doesn't tell us about it in yeah. the middle of the night. And uh, I suspect that the infection might have entered my home through uh, one of her activities. That's the only place I could think of it. Yeah, and that's uh, that's one of the things uh, in talking to uh, to Betsy's daughter, it's... You know, kids kind of go through, they're kind of experiencing this with kind of a sense of, like, invulnerability. And, you know, people need to understand it's not necessarily, although obviously they're vulnerable too, but the bigger issue is the effect that it has on older populations when those people come in contact with them, you know? Well, yeah, that was the original thing, but now, like, a couple things have happened, so um, I'm not sure if you've heard that over the past couple of days in New York, um, three, um, I'm not exactly sure their ages, I know one was a young child, but the old, the oldest one was, I believe, an adolescent. Three children have died in New York mm. now from what they're referring to as a COVID-related illness. So I think they're still not exactly sure if this is a mutation of the main virus or if they were wrong all the time about children and their immunity or their ability to be silent carriers of it. So this is an, um, you know, like sort of an emerging situation. That being said, you're absolutely right. At the time that my daughter might have been what I call the infector, um, if you look at like the behavior um Let's go back to Florida before that state was locked down. I've seen, I'm sure we all have probably seen news footage of spring breakers down there going crazy in bars and, you know, um, way too close contact, all kinds of, you know, risky behavior in a a contaminated, in a, you know, when there's a pandemic going on. Um, The the other thing that I find remarkable is I recently read about out in um, the state of Washington that people, some people are holding what they call COVID parties where people that have tested positive for COVID that are still possibly sick, definitely still have the infection, are throwing parties that people that have never been infected are going to in the hopes of getting infected on purpose to make this all go away quicker. It's a... Uh, wow. It's, uh, I didn't hear that. Yeah, it's a reminiscent of what they did what, uh, years ago when you and I were kids. Uh, parents used to have chicken pox parties where they would, uh, <laughs> they would take you into a household where a kid had chicken pox to make sure you got it because there was a lot of uh, misinformation about chicken pox that if you got chicken pox, you never had to worry again. But it turned out to be the opposite. People that develop shingles in later life are people that have had chicken pox, not the other way around that had been, I think, back to like, uh, if anybody remembers Dr. Spock, the famous pediatrician said that... Uh, 
if you had a full course of the chicken pox, you were immune from any further harm. Mm. And from what I hear, shingles is, is a horribly debilitating condition. Wow. Yeah. So, so, but to get back to your point, there was a lot of risky behavior, both. Uh, I think you hit the nail on the head regarding, uh, you know, when you're a kid, you don't think anything's going to get you. And, you know, to a certain extent, the millennials have really gotten the short end of the deal of middle class life in America their whole lives, right? Yeah. So, you know, I, I think some of them have the attitude of, you know, what else can you show me, you know? Mm-hmm. And um, your wife, uh, she became infected too. Is she okay now or...? Uh, yeah, she's pretty much, I would say she's like 99%. She's got a little bit of fatigue left over. Um, by the time, you know, the, a lot of, I read stories about people, you know, self-isolating in their home, but, you know, I literally woke up that morning sick. It was too late to isolate because whatever I had been exposed to, she already had been exposed to it as well as my kids, you know? Yeah, yeah. What, um... So I know that uh, you're really into sustainability and healthy lifestyle. Like, what what aspects of lifestyle do you think helped in terms of combating the virus? You know, that's a great question that, you know, without being assumptive or arrogant, I don't think I have a, a valid answer for. Here's what um, what I would like to think it is is that I lead a very healthy lifestyle. Fortunately, I don't have any of the main risk factors that are associated with people that wind up becoming hospitalized or passing away or being put on ventilators. Um, You know, I'm kind of a health food fanatic. I've been taking people laugh at me about how many vitamins I take. You know, I'd like to think I stay very physically active. I'd like to think that that has something to do with my immune system, mm-hmm. and maybe it does. But I, the, the emotional way I feel about it is that I just was extremely lucky. Hmm. I, don't, I don't know, and I don't think the medical community is positive of this either from all the, all the information I've taken in that, you know, viruses mutate very quickly. They're already talking about mutant versions of COVID-19. So the version or the case of COVID-19 that I had might have already been somewhat mutated. Maybe it wasn't a full infection. You know, there's so much missing information that um, I don't feel like I could be scientific about it no matter how hard I try. So what's your philosophy now that you, you've been infected? Like, so did you get tested? Did you actually get a test done? Like, what was the procedure for, for that? Well, the interesting thing about it was um, I, I went online immediately to find out if I could get um, tested. And uh, I called uh, whoever the, the, local, um, the local health organization and uh, they told me that I was not in the high-risk group so that um, I couldn't get tested. You know, it wasn't even like I was put on a wait list, which I found a little bit interesting because uh, I'm 63 years old. I think the cutoff might have been 65. But the other questions the person asked me about, you know, uh, whether I had diabetes or any previous respiratory ailments, um, uh, whether I was obese, 
there were several questions that he asked me, and uh, based on every one of them, he said, you can't, you can't even get a test. So this was, uh, let's say, I got my infection, I would, I'm guessing today's five weeks, just about four, four weeks to five weeks since I, I felt ill. So things have, you know, it's, it's obviously moving pretty quickly. That was their case at that point. As a matter of fact, I have a co-worker that, um, who I wasn't exposed to because the office had already been shut, who developed a very serious case of it. She's extremely high risk, um, mostly because of prior medical history. Um, she was sure she had it, and unfortunately she had a very serious version of it. Uh, they made her wait, I think, four days to get the standard test, not the antibody test, but the first test. Mm-hmm. And uh, in her case, she had a very long and slow and unfortunately painful experience with it. But when she finally went for her follow-up, she was tested for the disease and the antibodies. This is about a week ago. And she tested positive for both. Mm. So if you think about that for a minute, what is the... If, let's assume the test is accurate, which some people are still questioning. Yeah. What is the test telling us? Yeah. If you can have it and the antibodies, I guess if you had the antibodies but you didn't have it, you could argue that you had it, but that doesn't seem to really work. So I, I don't think there's the, the testing has been worked out where we can rely upon it. Um, I know that that the uh, taking one's temperature was one of the protocols that re- reopening businesses were going to use. However, it's a scientific fact that not all of us have 98.6 as our normal temperature. And since the fever that people run, like my, my fever was very typical for COVID, just like slightly over 100, right? So people that don't run 98.6 is their normal fever. Uh, you can take their temperature and it might look like they're fine. Like my, my normal temperature is under 98. So if I, if I have 98.6, I theoretically have a low grade fever. So I don't think that's a good screening technique. And, um, you know, I, I think that that whole part of the system, uh, unfortunately still needs some research and testing. Yeah. From what I've, from what I've heard, the, Tests vary, like different different countries have their own testing procedures set up. So there's there's not a lot of it's not the same across all cultures, and so. Um, from, from what I've read, and I could be wrong about this, but I believe that Germany and South Korea have the the most accurate test to date. But mm-hmm. I. I know that there were, at least were allegations that the test that China developed was, uh, had a lot of errors, but a lot of that, uh, information and communication on both sides seems to be, um, fringy. So I'm not, I'm not, I'm not confident in that. Yeah, I've, I've seen a lot of reports where there's both false positives and false negatives and, you know, having to take, you know, the test multiple times and still the come out with a 50-50 shot of if you have it or if you don't, you know, it's it's really not uh, 
not as helpful. As far as South Korea goes, you know, South Korea, from everything that I've read, is really the success story. You know, they did aggressive testing. They did aggressive tracing using people's cell phones to be able to connect the dots as far as people who would have been exposed and have really been able to contain it and not suffer the same economic consequences or the, the, the life consequences that, you know, other countries have. So, well, although I did hear in the past, I'm trying to think when I first started hearing, it was about a day or two ago, that cases in South Korea was starting to experience some new cases again. Mm-hmm. And that could be because they're lightening up the constraints on people. I'm not sure at this point if their borders are shut or not. Um, But, you know, that's the other frightening part of this illness is, you know, when the world is locked down or as much of it is locked down, uh, those people have not been exposed yet, presumably. Right. So as soon as you open the doors, you're bound to get a whole bunch of other cases. Additionally, because, you know, I just happen to live in New York and, and um, actually I heard Governor Cuomo speaking today about it, that, you know, the disease really entered this country from Europe. At, at first we were all told that you know, it came here from China. But the, it has been proven that the disease entered the United States through Europe, and specifically, I mentioned before that they don't live too far from Kennedy Airport, that Kennedy Airport is, you know, a major international hub, and that I think he said between when we first discovered that there was a, you know, that there was such a thing as COVID, um, and when we started to lock down, I think he said over 2 million passengers entered or re-entered this country from Europe. Hmm. Wow. So that's where, like, the initial seed, and that also, you know, Newark Airport is a, is a secondary major hub to the U.S. in New Jersey, that he, he at least interpreted that as that's why New York is really the first hotspot. Yeah. The frightening thing is, is that as we reopen, and you, if you look at a map of the rest of the country, all of these cases eventually are going to spread. Like, I believe the bulk of the states in this country have not experienced the load that they're going to experience and the illness. Yeah. I hope I'm wrong, but it appears if that, all those other facts are true, it just hasn't, the fan hasn't blown it in that direction yet. Yeah. No, I think that that's correct, and I mean, when you look at, like, um, the push by politicians to open up the economy again, I mean, that's all fine and good, but you're still not doing what you need to do in order to manage the tracking of the disease in order to limit its impact, which is the testing and the tracing, so you're just basically inviting a, a second wave to infect other areas yeah. that haven't yet experienced it. So. And, they, and so from what I've read about the second wave is that they, a lot of the experts are saying the second wave is going to be worse than the first wave because, because there's, you're starting 
starting out with a huge base of people that are infectious. Yeah, right? exactly. So, you know, I, when I think about it, the only thing that I can really point to that has much hope, although the timeline is very long, is, you know, some sort of vaccination that, you know, would prevent, would give you immunity, basically, uh, towards the illness. But that, at best, you know, the I think the earliest I hear anybody sensible talking about it, you know, at least a year away. At least. Yeah, I mean, I've... I think the fastest, I, I heard somebody on Bloomberg say that the fastest that a vaccine has ever been developed is four years. So I think, oh, really? yeah, so yeah. I think anybody, you know, kind of offering false hope that, you know, they can develop something within six months or a year, I think is, is naive. Um, yeah. And at the same time, especially the more that I read about the mutation you know, capabilities of viruses in general. As a matter of fact, from what I read about the flu, you know, one of the reasons they have to change the flu shot every year is the, the flu, which is a type of coronavirus, is mutating. Yeah. So what you were, you know, and that's why a lot of times, you know how they say that, oh, uh, they got the flu shot wrong this year? No, it's because they, they've developed it on last year's flu, and now the flu has mutated into a different type of virus. And the, and the shot that is not effective. Mm -hmm. So it's, you know, very much a moving platform, a moving target. Um, it really makes you wonder um, how this is going to all pan out. So you mentioned uh, Governor Cuomo, and I know when we were talking earlier, you said that he's started a process of reopening um, New York. Like, what does that look like? from your perspective? Um, well, I only caught part of his talk. Apparently, um, later I was going to look online. I know that New York State published a lot of documentation about it that I wanted to take a look. But apparently certain industries, I, um, off the top of my head, I know that the construction industry was one of the uh, types. So they took, they took different industries and they broke them out into, I think, maybe five different categories and that each one will have a different phase of opening, right? So for argument's sake, I know construction was in that first wave. What they plan on doing is, uh, he gave a good analogy of like opening a water valve, a water main that had been shut, right? And that as you turn on the flow, in other words, reintroduce people slowly into the workplace, not all at one time, right, and not in all venues and, and, and areas where they could possibly spread or catch the illness, that while you're slowly opening this water main, you have two meters that are next to you, and one of those meters is uh, how many people are being hospitalized. And the other meter is how many new cases we're, we're recording, right, as the detection is at least getting better than it was. And that once you pass the formula is um, uh, the, there are circuit breakers in place once either one of those guidelines pass uh, an index number that he referred to as 1.1, which is pretty simple. An index of one means that one infected person has the ability to transmit 
their virus to one other person. So it's sort of like a break even, right? That first person will eventually get better, second person gets infected. And as soon as the that number were to go below one, right, then in theory we're, we're ridding ourselves of the disease. Yeah. As soon as the index surpasses one, for instance, it's 1.1, I believe that's the number he gave, where the person at the water main has to start turning that water main off. Not shutting it off completely and re-isolating, but slowing the flow of the reintroduction of people into society to a slower rate where we can maintain that one or under figure. Mm. Because otherwise we're going to get right back to running out of hospital beds, ventilators, you know, everything. And so the death rate, unfortunately, the mortality rate will go up, the infection rate will go up. You know, so it, that made a lot of common sense to me that there was always going to be somebody who was not asleep at the switch, you know, to be, to be able to monitor it. Yeah. And he said that that's a full-time monitor and that if either one of those gauges, the hospitalization one or the infection rate, were to start um, going up, it was like an immediate, he, called, he literally called it a circuit breaker. Hmm. So immediate action would be taken. It seems to be pretty commonsensical to me. Um, the only the only trepidation I I have in that, you know, I mean, any any plan is subject to failure. But uh, you know, as you know, uh, we have several states at least that are going what I call renegade on on you know lockdown. So, for instance, not to pick on the state of South Dakota, but I know that they're heavily rebelling against being contained. Um, how is New York going to keep truck drivers from South Dakota out of entering New York with an infection? So that anyone out of state is now an infector, yeah. right? There yeah. is some agreement uh, he referred to between, like, the tri-state area, uh, even including, I think, I think it's Massachusetts, New Jersey, Vermont, uh, Delaware, maybe, that they're all trying to work together. But anybody who pierces that is is going to infect people, right? So there, you know, there are issues with that as well. Yeah, in some ways, you have to actually aggressively test populations that are going to have the opportunity to spread the virus to more geographical places that actually makes sense that those people need to kind of have a track record of being tested and kind of carry some sort of credentials so that you know they're they're not infecting other populations right well that that's a really good point the only other you know there's so much unknown with this virus that they don't know what's the good antibodies actually yeah. do you because they don't know if you can get reinfected and they also then certainly don't know the time frame, right? So maybe you could get this every three months, yeah, right? Or maybe you could have the antibodies and get sick again. So it doesn't, uh, and they, I don't believe, I could be wrong about this, but I don't believe there's certainty in how long the antibodies are actually hanging around for. So unfortunately, you know, not that I'm trying to be pessimistic, I see this all as a very open-ended situation. You know, I know there are plans, but you know that old saying, the best laid plans of mice and men? Yeah, yeah. 
So, mm-hmm. so where I, I think you know many people are doing their very best, but there are too many unknowns, and the disease itself is not understood well enough. For instance, even take take you know my case where I I said before I would you know my wife as well. Um, I feel like the luckiest person that had COVID nineteen because I didn't have to go to the hospital. I didn't go to the doctor. I, you know, I, I suffered, but nothing, you know, nothing to complain about in comparison to the horror stories, right? And yet, for all I know, I could uh, leave the house today and, you know, just accidentally bump into somebody who's not practicing safe distancing who has a, a, a worse version of it than I do and get infected again in whatever, 14 days or six days or whatever they've, you know, most lately decided the incubation period is. I don't know if I have any advantage over somebody who hasn't been infected. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And I'm behaving <clears throat> as though I'm still infected. So in terms of going out in public, you know, I, I, if I'm by myself on an empty street, I won't wear any protection. But I haven't gone back into stores. Although if I do go into a store, you know, I would be wearing a full mask, obviously, and, you know, stay, you know, they say six feet, I would stay 12 feet away from people mm-hmm. because that's the other side of, you know, I think our responsibility is, exactly. you know, most people look at it as like, oh, I hope I don't get it, but I'm also hoping I don't give it to anybody, yeah. you know? Well, I think that's the key concept is responsibility, right? It's, it's It has to be a larger sense of community than than uh, just, I want my life back the way it was. You know, there has to be a sense of responsibility to the larger group. And in some ways, that's been really aggressively attacked over the past, you know, three, five, ten years. Um, well, that's, that's true, and that's sort of, in a way, can segue us into a more depressing and certainly ethical conversation is that so you know you and i have been talking sustainability for a long time you know before we knew each other certainly to each other and you know everybody else we know pretty much consistently right so you know one really horrible way to look at coronavirus number number one is that you know the earth can't bear its population at this point. And, um, you know, if enough people pass away from this illness, it'll serve to depopulate the world. I'm not suggesting this, so don't, I don't want any of your listeners to think that for a minute I would want this to happen. But the, the burden on the earth is so great that it almost seems that at some point in time, hopefully it's not, it's not, hopefully I'm completely wrong. Mm-hmm. But uh, if I'm not completely wrong, hopefully I'm wrong about the coronavirus, that something will have to take the weight off the world, right? So either business will have to stop or slow down. We already, had, you know, you and I have had that fossil fuel conversation yeah. from yeah. a million years, right? We have climate change that's so obvious that it's very, very difficult for anybody to effectively argue against it. 
right? And that literally the only way to remove all this is taking the burden on the earth. And, and unfortunately, that includes having a smaller population, yeah. right? Yeah. A smaller, slower-moving population. Yeah, well, being more locally based, but that requires really a, a change in the economic system. And I think more than anything, what this illustrates is how difficult it is, or not how difficult it is, but how destructive it is to people who are not among the 1%, but the 99%, how changing that economic system hurts them and makes that kind of a transition in terms of the economic system, you know, difficult. You know, how do you, how do you move from one mindset, from one way of running the economy to another? Right. Um, and obviously there's political issues involved in terms of who's getting aid these days um, and who's not. And, you know, it could be, the burden could be softened a lot. It's not like they can't say that, well, we can't afford it because they've already spent $7 trillion, you know, supporting the economy, so to speak. financial systems in general anyway is look so look at our government right so you know the economy was chugging along and most people seem to be satisfied with it at least the, the haves right the middle class i don't think was you know buying vacation homes or anything extravagant homeless people were still growing in number right yeah but but now you know, we have such a complicated interlocked system that in terms of trying to find a way to change it or shift it, it's going to be difficult. And even even though, you know, I, I, I think I have a better idea than they do, and I am thankful for this because I'm a participant, small business administration, so I have, I have my own entity, it's an LLC, I was given, uh, you know, a loan is what it's referred to that's possibly non-repayable to help tide me over if I'm not able to make salaries and first, you know, necessary expenses and things like that. But the government just wrote me a check and I'm a very small company that, you know, got deposited. I have every intention of using it 100% appropriately, but all they did to be able to write that check to me, and I'm, you know, the smallest, you know, probably one of the smaller checks they wrote, is they simply printed more fake money. <laughs> yeah. Right? It's not, it's not tied to gold. Money is not even tied to money, as you know, right? If you, if you were to call in every dollar bill that's supposed to, in theory, right, isn't the Federal Reserve supposed to have one dollar for every dollar that's in circulation? Mm -hmm. They said it. That, that doesn't that hasn't existed for years, right? If you yeah. go to to any of the banks, the, the, mm. the even the paper doesn't exist. So that the amazing ability of the government to do what they did to just print more money actually wreaks more havoc, you know, than the short term good it does. Maybe one of the one of the models that I heard about that I think would have been much smarter 
and again, I'm not complaining. I'm happy that I have this pad, this safety pad. If, if you know, if I, I need to feed my family with it. But maybe what the government should have done is extended me a line of credit. Then mm. they wouldn't have had to print the money unless I needed it. Yeah. Right? Yeah. But now the, the SBA has so much money out in the states as cash. So what just happened to money? Mm-hmm. And it's, it's what? What did you say? It was trillions of dollars? Yeah, seven. Seven trillion. So that, that's an awful lot of, you know, fake paper, right? So at least, like, the lines of credit would have made sense, you know, and come up with a streamlined process of being approved for a loan. So if I find out on a Monday that I needed the loan, find some way that it gets approved and I get the cash in a week. Because even the, even the what they refer to as the uh, payroll protection plan, the PPP, and still, once that my, my uh, application went through, I had the money in a week. Mm. So it just seems like we're wreaking worse economic havoc, maybe, by... The methods that are being used. Yeah, and I mean one of the one of the side effects is, you know, throwing money into companies that were effectively running at a deficit anyway before the virus came along. I mean, there were plenty of companies, especially fossil fuel companies, that were unprofitable, that were, you know, not able to sustain themselves, and in some ways this has been used as a blessing to kind of fill up their coffers again to um, get more funding, uh, whereas they weren't able to get that funding, you know, last year. So, right. you know, in some ways it hinders the process of, you know, the economy evolving to a place that's actually more efficient, that is, you know, right. where it needs to be in order to for the planet to survive, let alone... For people to be able to earn a decent wage and, you know, be able to take care of their families. It did. It, it, it actually it made the whole greater by exactly yeah. what you said. Because so not only is the money being distributed, it's actually helping companies that need to be reined in in some cases yeah. rather than gifted, right? Yeah. So, and on top of it, if you look at, at some of the policy changes that have been made on a federal level uh we already backed up on the uh targets for gasoline mileage right yeah it seems like that's the first thing to go is okay well screw the environment because uh you know we got to take care of this right now so we don't want to interfere with business as usual in in any sort of way i don't really see how that's helping yeah I just see it hurting the environment more. Yeah, and hurting the environment ends up creating more issues. For example, one of the uh, one of the issues is um, minority populations seem to be suffering disproportionately more from the virus than um, Caucasian populations, and part of that has to be in terms of their the health situation that they're at. To begin with, well, some 
of it yet. So that that's an interesting point too, because that goes back to really early in our conversation today, right? Where I said, you know, I eat really well and mm-hmm. I take vitamins, and I'm just a very lucky person that I can even afford to do that. If you look at what's happened, uh, for instance, like one of one of my you know favorite childhood spots was Coney Island. Mm-hmm. So I go to Coney Island on a pretty regular basis, and sometimes I park pretty far away from where the amusement area is. And I would say the majority of adults, particularly old, you know, middle-aged and older adults, are using walkers at this point. And from what I've read about it, it's directly related to becoming diabetic. And the reason many of them are becoming diabetic is because all of the successful larger supermarket chains won't enter those neighborhoods because they can't make the same kind of profit margin. So the food sources in those neighborhoods are actually creating the diabetic conditions that many of the people are suffering from. For instance, fast food. So, you know, there are corner bodegas maybe in some places, but they're not selling health foods for sure. Mm -hmm. But many people are living in, like, you know, KFCs and McDonald's and places like that that, you know, have been proven to be linked to causing diabetes, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, food deserts, yeah. So so you're right, and unfortunately what we're doing is we're taking an already unbalanced economic situation and we're really making the poor way poorer yeah. and more deprived. Plus, I know that I read, even though I was complaining earlier about you know people like, like that, a business associate of mine who had to wait several days to be tested, when she was high risk, and from what I understand, in those areas, the lower income people and people of color are having more difficulty even getting the ability to be tested. Yeah, yeah, and I think the the cost of the, the cost of the test is something that's borne by the person. Is that correct? From what you've heard, or actually, I don't know anything about the cost of the test because I didn't have it done. That's it. That's an interesting point. I don't know who's funding that or if that, you know, you have to have health care, which most, many of those people don't have Exactly, anyway. exactly. Right? Yeah. So I'm not sure how, the, how those tests are paid for. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in a lot of ways, uh, people will also avoid getting the test as, uh, because they don't have the health care and they can't afford the expenses of the treatment, you know. Um, in some well, ways, know, almost what's the point in knowing when yeah. you can't do anything about it? Right? Exactly, exactly. Which then makes them spreaders, um, right? Where they're not being contained, you know, um, which just makes the problem even worse, yeah. you know, for society. You know, not not to.
<laughs> because uh, you know there's enough sadness in the world that like I want to laugh when I see a movie. A lot yeah. of people you know call me names for it and they make fun of me, but I, I don't really care. It makes me feel better. So so part of the uh, part of the that I've experienced is that when I think about this whole COVID situation that we're living in, you know what I've been telling people? is that this is reminding me of a movie that I would not go to see. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, this is the, the, the opposite, the flip side of that is actually true because if you look at what they're airing on network television, it's like every disaster movie in the world. Yeah. That's the last thing we need to really be looking at, I think, at this point. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> but, um, you know, not not to make too much light of it, it's a, it's a very um, open-ended, frightening time. Um, and I don't... I think the only people that you can be sure of are the people that are telling you that they know what's going to happen that they must be wrong because I don't see how there's anybody out there that actually knows how this is going to turn out. No, I think that's true. And I think there has to be a healthy dose of skepticism of what you hear and, you know, being able to kind of take some responsibility for looking into it deeper so that you are able to weigh the different information packets that you're receiving to be able to make good decisions because you know we need to uh, like you said act more responsibly yeah and and I think that even too I mean granted you know I'm, I'm, I'm an older person I hate saying that but um, even after I just got my one, AARP card <laughs> I've been throwing mine away for years <laughs> Ah, you're busted. So I'm in the club. I need to be in the club. You know, but that even, but but the, you know, part of the lesson learned is that after, you know, hopefully after this passes, I, you know, I'm not, I'm not a uh, germ phobic person, but uh, I have much less of a desire to be in large crowds than I ever did. And things even like, uh, my wife is a commuter into New York City. Uh, you know, her office is closed and she's working remotely from home now, but uh, every day she takes at least two subways and uh, she's on four different Long Island Railroad cars. Wow. That's not something I would want to do anymore. No, not at all. You know, just because of the transmission of it. Yeah. You know, one of the very interesting things I think that we're about to see is, you know, now that I think what there are three confirmed cases in the inner White House. Yeah. Um, I don't know how much of it will, will be made completely available to the public, but it's going to be very interesting to see how the White House itself reacts to this now that it's in their own digs. Well, in addition, I uh, I also read that eleven Secret Service agents have been diagnosed. Yeah, so. it's just you know it's got to just be a matter of time. Yeah. Plus, um, you know, not that I really want to turn this into a political conversation per se, unless it winds up going there. But um, what was it like just a week or two ago? They showed the Vice President in a hospital 
not wearing a mask. Yeah. Everybody around, everybody around him wearing a mask, and he's the only one not wearing a mask. Yeah, I just don't, I just can't really make sense of it. And so part of what that, you know, causes in me is more doubt that they don't really know what's going on. You know, even if I leave it neutral, that neutral, right? Yeah. <laughs> so to speak. Yeah. Um, you know, and there are plenty of people, obviously, on both sides. It's not strictly a political issue. It's just noticing the power of the people, the, uh, the behavior of the people who are in control at this point don't appear to be controlling it too well, and now it's kind of hitting the fan. Hmm. I hadn't heard that about the Secret Service agents, though. Yeah, so when they, again, it's just... When you start listening, like you, you hear about one case in the White House, and then oh, there's another one, and then oh, here's another eleven. It's like what you you see them, and none of them are wearing masks. You know, I saw today Pelosi was giving a speech, and as they all walked in wearing masks, you know, she lowered the mask for the microphone to talk, but and then put it back on. Um, I mean, obviously they're acting responsibly, but you know when. It looks like when the White House is in business mode, there there's little regard for masks among the people there. So yeah, so I mean, who knows? I mean, I guess because you know the White House keeps tight security to begin with. Maybe that's what's taken it so long to get there. But now that it's there, it's probably going to spread pretty quickly. Yeah. Yep. What um. You know, one of the one of the things that I think is interesting is I remember, you know, in my time walking around New York City, you would see Chinese tourists that would you would always see them wearing masks. And I always thought that was kind of odd, but now with this experience, you know, knowing that, you know, they've obviously had a, a number of epidemics in the past couple of years, couple of decades, that they've become conditioned to, you know, respect the fact that they can become infected and you don't know what is going on necessarily where you're at. So, you know, I, I can see where I'm going to be walking around New York City in the future and, you know, I'm going to be wearing my mask, you know, it's just the way it's going to be going forward. more conditioning I think you know you get of 
viruses, yeah. which seem to be coming more and more deadly, right? Plus, you know, another factor, and I realize I'm going out on a limb here, you know, I'm not, you know, saying this is gospel, but when you look at how many species of animals, and particularly more, probably more so, plants, I shouldn't really say that, animals and plants that are now extinct, and, you know, how that's accelerated in the past few years, you know, there are, there are plenty of things that used to have predators that don't have predators anymore. And that's where you see populations of different, you know, species going out of control. Yeah. Because the species that used to keep them in check is gone, right? Yeah. So for all we know, and I realized, again, I'm stretching because this is pretty abstract and I don't have hardcore facts to back it up, but for all I know, there might have been something that helped keep viruses from from mutating to that extent or from that type of uh, strength that they seem to possess. Well, if if you take a second, though, and you think about, at least in the U.S., what's happened in terms of animal agriculture and the use of antibiotics within animals, and people consume those animals, and that has an impact in terms of your immune system um, becoming used to those... To those um, whatever protections and you know there's been plenty of cases of superbugs that have you know developed within hospitals where people don't have you know they just don't have the uh, immunity left to deal with them so if we're living in a world where we're com- we're consuming more indirectly in terms of antibiotics and we don't have the immune systems to be able to deal with things that happen within the bodies, you know, obviously there's going to be worse consequences. Yeah. But again, like even, and and two, it's interesting because there are a lot of topics that we're discussing that are, you know, related but not quite related, right? Before when you were this, the solution or one of the possible solutions to this problem isn't unlike something that didn't come up, but I had thought about when we were talking about the economics, right? Mm-hmm. That, you know, it's very easy to complicate, right? We, we all, as organisms, as people on the planet, as a society, right? You think about each new law that's even brought into effect. All we're doing is we're complicating, right? Yep. Complicating things is a very easy thing to do, yep. right? Because you're working, you know, you're basically working around a problem that exists without correcting the problem. That's right. right. Yeah. So, so we are at the point where our environment and our financial system and our planet and the, the use of the antibiotics and the other other chemicals, you know, look at look at Roundup. Yeah. Perfect example, right? Are so strange complications that to go the other way and to really uncomplicate. Right to solve the underlying problem or live with the underlying problem rather than complicate, it, that's not like doesn't seem to be a natural human behavior. And sadly, the only way I think that that could happen is by some kind of horrific event. Right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, we need to be people need to be shaken up in order to become aware of the need for change. Uh, what's the uh, 
the analogy of uh, if you drop a frog in a boiling pot, it jumps right out. But if you just slowly turn up the heat, you know, the, the frog basically ends up boiling because it doesn't respond to the incremental change. Oh, I didn't, I didn't know that. Really? That's a great, that's a great analogy, though. Oh, that's, that's old school from the 80s, but, you know. Because now, I think you and I at least would agree the pot's boiling. Yeah, I would say. Multiple fronts. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and on that uh, on that upbeat chipper <laughs> note, <laughs> I know, I know. We have so many, and it's hurricane season. Anyway, <clears throat> but I did want. I just wanted to kind of give people a chance to kind of hear from somebody who went through the experience, and uh, especially in New York, which obviously is bared the brunt of. Um, what's going on and just be able to think through some of these different aspects because it it's not a simple thing it has you have to look at it as a uh, as a mosaic as a, uh, a lot of different things have to be understood and appreciated yeah so a lot of a lot of moving parts all right well thanks for taking the time to chat today and we'll uh, we'll talk again soon Thanks, bud.